0: From Hong Kong, this is the Mea Kupa podcast with lessons learned from startups based on the postmortem conference where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. Today, we have Hoi Yin, the CEO and founder of Remo.co. Hoi Yin, good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon, Jeffrey. Super happy to be on your podcast. Thanks for inviting me.
0: You're welcome. Thank you for uh, being here. Oien, how did you make your way into startups? Um, For me,
1: uh, I've always wanted to do something on my own um, since I was in college. Um, I started getting into it when I came back to Hong Kong. And um, I started just doing you know, small projects here and there, just trying things, you know, a lot of things that didn't work and some things that did. Um, and then just through doing a lot of small projects and a lot of small things it just started to get me to learn about, um, startups in general, and also, um, founders Institute, obviously, um, those were like great opportunities that allowed me to, um, uh, get into it, get my feet wet, learn about it, know people, etc. So, yeah all those things
0: okay but because originally you're uh uh, you studied accounting i think was correct
1: no originally i studied bioengineering and i was working for a bank previously i've worked at a management consulting company previously in it
0: okay and how did you at that point yeah uh, came up with like i i want to be that entrepreneur what uh, what was the drive there what was the the, uh, the, the itch for yourself that you wanted to uh, scratch? I think um,
1: I think like
0: when I was a kid, I remember
1: um, that I really wanted to create something that I was really passionate about, that I would put in a lot of effort in. Um, and so w- when I was a kid, I always wanted to, wanted to do that. And entrepreneurship, I think, or startups just seemed to be one of those things where I could pour a lot of, information, uh, a lot of um, uh, effort into something that I really, really enjoyed doing and and was motivated, motivated by doing. So I think that was, it was definitely when I was definitely in college, um, when I learned about all, a lot of other future entrepreneurs. When I was in college, it was like right after the dot-com bubble in 2001. Um, and so there was like a lot of talk about startups and failure and all that kind of stuff and what to do. And I think that was like a time where I, I really got really got immersed in that kind of mindset and the belief in technology and the future of entrepreneurship.
0: What was your first venture and uh what became of that venture um uh, as as your first time founder? So my first
1: venture was um I sold um a car phone mount on amazon.com um and it was a magnetic car phone mount that Um, we, uh, produced and it was the first one to hit the market. That was magnetic. And, um, you know, I was quite lucky in a sense where that the first project out the door that I did with some friends was successful. Um, we were a top 10 car phone mount for over three, four years. Um, we sold it at a really good margin. Um, nobody really copied us for some reason until much later. Um and and it ran for about you know for a good four or five years and, and gave me that kind of initial capital to then you know do something else. So um so it it kind of shut down after that because there were too many competitors that were like very cheap and um and it was it was it was a very hard to compete market and so we we decided to like close it down afterwards.
0: Um because it's your first venture, um if at that point you're in that position, right, that their competitors are coming up, they're making cheaper or they're selling cheaper. What was the point for you that you decided, hey, this is not going to work. We have to close this down because yeah, you could have also gone with different products. You could to also go lower right. your price. So at, at, at one point, there should be for you a, probably a decision saying this has no used to continue
1: yeah lowering price wasn't really worth it um given all the effort that we put in um that was the reason why we decided that lowering price like well we did lower price by the way it's just we didn't want to keep lowering the price Um, it just didn't it wasn't really worth it anymore um the other thing is that you know we didn't want to expand further into like the car phone market space like it just wasn't something that we really wanted to do and frankly, it was, it was a great space to be in for a few years, but it didn't really have too much defensibility in it in, in general. Um, and so we wanted to kind of go do something else. So I, I did go out and try to find other products to do and other hardware products to do. But, um, but then, you know, I started starting to, you know, explore tech and explore startups and tech. And, and then that's when I figured, hey, you know, I want something a lot more scalable. I want something a lot more, Defensible, um, and that's when I started going into attacking. Kind of um, stepped out of hardware from from, the, from there.
0: Okay. And if you look at that, you're saying we. Uh, that means that you probably had co-founders or, or partners in that sense. How did you, mm-hmm. as a first-time founder, uh, arrange that? Did you had people that were already established entrepreneurs helping you how to make those kind of uh, decisions and and Uh, say co-founder agreements or that kind of thing or you just made some errors along the way
1: yeah so i i worked with um some friends on it um and we didn't have um it it was it was a a unique sort of um structure like we had like a a a revenue share agreement between all of us um it wasn't like oh we have it wasn't like, oh, we had a company. It was more of like a revenue share. Um, and it was through between friends, which I kind of don't recommend in general. We're very lucky that, you know, we, we knew each other really well and we're very honest with each other. That as friends, we had a very successful venture and also a very successful relationship um, during and after the venture. But that is, I would say, more of a... Uh, exception rather than the norm, and I would still highly encourage people to not do that with their friends, even though we were successful in that. But I, I haven't done business with friends since then. You know, I, it was a very very unique set of individuals that we we laid the ground rules very very clearly, and that led to very minimal problems. Um, but um, you need a, a degree of of maturity and a degree of experience, I guess, with with each other to be that honest and to understand, you know, to be that honest basically.
0: Yeah. Quite often when I talk to aspiring entrepreneurs, they were like, yeah, I have some friends helping out, uh, then, uh, yeah, we have to give them some advice on that. And then basically giving the same advice that you're now giving, but where did you got that knowledge? Like, did you had experienced entrepreneurs advising you or, you saw already like error somewhere else or you read a book, or how did you get to that? We,
1: yeah we we've we got you know we had some um, you know some of um, uh, our like kind of parents generation, like they've done business and they would warn us about that. so they definitely told us about that um, and warned us that you guys got to be careful. These are the things that you need to do, have have clear expectations, good communication, da 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 da. To prevent these things so we got a lot of guidance from our parents that
0: have basically done this before okay so you're coming out of a, a family of entrepreneurs or at least business people i guess so you can say that yeah yeah for sure okay. absolutely okay um but then yeah uh, you decide to say goodbye to your first venture yeah what was next for you then like how how do you come up with a with a next idea or did you uh, start working for uh, for a boss for a while. So I think it's
1: about like for me, all of, all of the ventures that I've done, you can draw a line in between every single one of them. Each one is connected to each other in some way or form. So when I was working on the Carful Mount, I was trying uh, Instagram and creating leads through Instagram, and so. Um, I found a way how to get followers and to get more leads, and that became a saAS product called Rightly Social and that's when I started doing that and um, for a while and um, that that became a business. Um, so every single business kind of originated from one of the previous projects or things that I did and and I think that's that's what I believe is a, a pretty key learning, which is like you just got to do something you just got to create something try something because things will come out of it opportunities will come to you once you just do something um over time
0: so from the magnetic car mounts you went into social media uh rightly social as you uh, as right. you said uh, right. okay tell me a little bit more about that uh, venture
1: yeah so rally social was a uh, was, was helping small medium businesses grow their their engagement and their followers on it on instagram mostly but we could do it on some other platforms at that time and um it's a SaaS platform that just helps them with their engagement um and you know i, I grew that from nothing um i think we it was like sixty thousand mrR it was like the highest that we, we, we were doing and i had like 25 people on the team um okay. and i outsourced pretty i like had a remote team i had a i had a predominantly filipino team actually Most of the people that were working for me were in the Philippines, so I really kind of um, made it into a. It was there's there's some you know work that needed to be done from an operation side. I made a lot of things, some things manual and some things very, um, what's the word, uh, automated. It was a combination of both, and um, yeah, and then we were able to um, grow to a pretty, you know, okay amount, and then. um that that helped that helped kind of like open up new doors to other things
0: as well as you know obviously that social media is a very highly competitive uh, area right helping companies do social media why do you think you got to the stage that you got to uh, what, what was unique about you compared to others
1: um i i think it was timing one was timing and then i think two was um like, I was early. I was a bit early. And um, and two is, like, I kind of pioneered a lot of things that were in that industry a little bit, um, like how to reach customers, how to serve customers, and all that kind of stuff. So it was it was um, something that a lot of people, other people weren't doing. And um, I, I basically, I was able to do a lot with very little resources. <laughs> and I think that um, helped. Um, yeah, that helped a lot. I mean, that... Uh, that, well, that helped kind of drive the company forward and stuff like that. But eventually also like, um, you know, I did that project for quite some time too. And then um, that project also had uh, was also getting competitive too. And so um, then I, and when I was in that project, I started investing in, in developing new products, new projects, stuff like that. So I'm always like looking at something else, like I'm doing something and always experimenting on the side. You know always looking for product market fit almost like the product market fit journey for me never really ends is what I've learned it just keeps on keeps going you're always trying to find product market fit into um, some degree for something yeah
0: yeah because at that point also in the meantime uh, when you're doing this you also went through uh, the Founder Institute program um, right. uh, it, in Hong Kong, you went there with a, with an ID. Can you tell, can you tell me a little bit more about that idea?
1: Yeah. So, um, when I went through a Founders Institute, um, in Hong Kong, I was like super excited because I got to meet a lot of people and build my network and, and stuff like that. And when I first started, we, um, I came with this idea of, um, and honestly, like I wasn't really sure that, that idea would really go anywhere. To begin with, I didn't think I would really be able to do it, but I was able to um, learn and test and stuff like that. Um, basically, it's like a mobile app that you would take pictures of your food, and it would tell you what nutritional value was of that food. <laughs> and um, and I came up with the idea, and um, and I I did a concierge MVP of it, meaning like uh, I created this website, uh, a WordPress site, WordPress site, and didn't, didn't use any coding. And somebody would take a picture, upload it onto this WordPress site onto their own account, and then somebody would manually someone would receive an email and manually look at the picture and try to estimate what what food it is, how much of volume it is, and then um, look up all the nutritional values and then like send it back to the person send it back to the person. And it took around about three minutes to do. But um, because I was able to show a, a, a prototype, and I was able to, co- co- you know, create this really convincing argument, um, I was able to, you know, go through Founders Institute. Um, I think I was one of the top uh, in terms of score, uh, one of the top candidates in that in that class, and also I was able to get ten thousand U.S. dollars in funding for for that idea. So um, that allowed me to kind of continue tests and try out different things and. Um, but eventually it didn't work. Eventually it, it would consider that a failure. Um, and that was, um, that was, those are definitely a lot of learnings there. Why didn't it work? So, um, when you, well, one of the things was that like, obviously was, you need really strong computer vision to identify the products, the foods there, but also the problem is, is that like a lot of food is all mushed together. So even if you could identify it with computer vision, um. It's, it's maybe not be easy to kind of dissect it. And the other, other way is maybe you have a record of every single dish and what are the nutritional values of every single dish everywhere, like some sort of huge database. Um, and so there was a lot of technical challenges there. The second challenge was that people just weren't willing to pay for it, really. And that was a problem. And so the only other potential way that you could um, get payment is for insurance companies so that people can eat healthier. And the insurance comes in with papers, it's kind of like the, the step, you know, the, the step thing on your on your watch or, you know, you know what I mean? Like that, people don't really pay for that, but they might get a discount off of their insurance. So that was like one thing. But I didn't know anyone in insurance. So it was really difficult to go and sell to those companies. Um, and when I initially sold it, they weren't interested. Um, and the people who were willing to be, willing to pay, they were like diabetics. And diabetics want it to be very, very accurate. So it's like, a, it's like a challenge of not paying, don't care about accuracy, or you pay and you really care about accuracy. And accuracy obviously was something that was really difficult to do um, in this situation. And so I realized that I'm probably not the right person to do it. And ultimately, it's, it's too difficult. Like you need you know computer vision. And computer vision guys are extremely expensive really really expensive and then i realized i'm probably not the right person to do this what's funny is that no one has created this yet so far so it's a it's a problem that has yet to be solved and don't know when it would ever be solved and don't even know if it's even a good problem to solve to be honest
0: okay and then you were doing riotly and then you came up with an idea what you're currently also working on uh, how you came up with uh with the idea from remo
1: yeah so um, I was, I, with Riley, I had, um, everyone was working remotely. Um, it was a fully remote company. Um, and I started learning a lot about remote teams when I was running that business because I, I, needed to, I wanted to learn how to do it. And so I went to a lot of conferences and learned a lot online about how to manage remote teams. So then I created um, a product. I started hiring um, engineers um, to work on, create on this product um, while I was doing Riley. And created a product that's kind of like a online virtual office. And that was trying to solve a problem, which, was, which I found was like, it's actually very hard to connect with people online in a very human way. Um, and so that's when I started developing this vision where how you create authentic conversations that, uh, that drive meaningful relationships. Because that's what you need in a business, in a company. You, have, you need to have meaningful relationships with others so that people would you know, stay and work and have a good time working, working with you. Um, and so we were kind of solving our own problem um, i did do some validation i validated I, I interviewed like a whole ton of people uh that wanted to do it the problem was that the market was too small the market is really really small at that time back in 2018 and um and also like people who are already working remotely um, they didn't see this product as something that they would use they already had their own processes they already had their own products that they were using. It was very difficult to migrate out. And so you could only really uh, attract all the new full, uh, companies that are trying to become fully remote. And back in 2018, no one, 2019, no one was doing that. And only fully re- like remote teams really started to pick up at the end of 2019, just right before the pandemic, coincidentally. Um, and so uh, it is a failure in some sense that uh, the initial idea that I thought, I interviewed people and they said that they needed it. Uh, they said that they would want it, but it failed. And um, and when I um, pivoted into conferences and, and events, that's when I saw people were just like ecstatic about it. They were just so happy to see it. And, and that's one of the key learnings that I've had, which is you got to test it and just, you got to, if you create something it doesn't work, you have to keep on testing it and just showing it around packaging it differently, you target different people, you know, do different use cases, until you're lucky enough to find something that people really, really resonate with. And that's the key, I think, to startups, which is find things that people resonate with, find things that people resonate with, they are like, Oh, my God, this thing is great. And, um, and and just follow that, follow that. And that's what startups is startups is a bunch of trial and error and figuring out what works
0: um did you do that uh, by yourself or do you have co-founders in that
1: i did by myself as well i think i'm a bit a little bit unique in a way that like i've always had a business rolled that into something else and kept on rolling and rolling and rolling into something else so i never really had the opportunity to work with a co-founder or or to get funding um it was just you know i'm i'm building a business i'm not building a a startup to kind of get funding or whatever. I'm building a business to make money, and that kind of is what the what it, 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 it is based off of that. But I have people that I work with that are really great, and that they, they sort of um, are really really involved and engaged in, in what I'm doing and uh, and what we're trying to accomplish. So, you know, even though I don't have a co-founder, there's a lot of people around me that we are all very engaged in trying to achieve that goal. All
0: right. And did you bootstrap it or did you get investment?
1: I, because I already was able to fund it myself. I just funded it myself. I didn't, I didn't pitch. I didn't do anything. I just funded it myself.
0: Yeah. Because at one point what you said, right? Uh, end of two, uh, uh, 2019, beginning of 2020, COVID hits. Everybody has to work from home. Events are canceled. Uh, you're at the right time at the right, with the right product. How did that? go for you like were you overwhelmed where you're like oh what's going on right now well how did that go for you personally
1: i mean we're overwhelmed i mean it was just crazy what's funny was that like i was gonna shut down remo at april of 2020. like i was like this is not going much i'm not too sure how long we can last you know let's just not really, um, do much with Remo, uh, uh in 2020, that's uh, uh, by April of 2020. And, and then that's what, um, and then COVID hit, you know, um, and we were just crazy overwhelmed. We had so many leads. We couldn't sell fast enough. It was just insane. It was just absolutely, um, bonkers crazy. Um, and so we, uh, we 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 essentially um it was like a blur, really. We were just growing so fast and doing so many things it was just really a blur. just didn't know what was kind of happening um didn't know when it was gonna end. We thought that it was gonna end, but we just didn't know when. Um, mm-hmm. so there was this sense of like, wow, this is amazing, but also a sense of like, okay, well, we don't know when it's gonna end. it's just for now um and so for the full year of 2020 it was just like this weird sort of excitement but at the same time uh, a sense of like um uh, uh uh nervousness to to know how long this thing's gonna last and no one knew how long it was gonna last right um we still don't know how long it's gonna last we think it's gonna we think it's gonna finish and then omicron comes by so who knows at this point
0: well that means that you're at that point actually looking to scale down but all of a sudden you have to scale up how did you do that internally like i can imagine that you were not ready for the book for the tidal wave that came to you
1: yeah we weren't we were trying to hire and sell at the same time it was just very difficult extremely extremely difficult and hiring takes time really really takes time um so like the wave was there and we were like six months late until we actually were able to sort of meet demand six seven months to meet demand so it's it's incredibly difficult the best way you can try to solve that is just be as self-service as possible, which is what we did.
0: Weren't you scared that because you were not able to meet the demand that at that point it would hurt your brand. And people say like, Oh, it's a, I don't know, like a city platform. Uh, the, they're, they're not up to this. They're, uh, they're not ready. How, Absolutely. how did you mitigate that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it literally is like trying to fly an airplane as it like, flies off a cliff. Like that was literally where we were at. You know, people wanted us to be better at da, da, da So, you know, it was difficult. It was extremely, extremely difficult. Um, the only good thing is that because of the pandemic and people had no idea what the hell was going on. They don't know what a virtual platform is, blah 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 blah. Everyone was willing to be a little bit more understanding for a product that wasn't fully fleshed out. So it we we had that reason to bank off of now that's not a reason anymore you can't use that reason but at that time it was acceptable because of the extreme situation
0: what was at that point that you said i'm not going to wind this down i'm really going to do this because i foresee this to be at least for the near future something that really hits was it like one big client signing up was that because you just thought this is going to be something that's just
1: like it was it was uh, pretty simple drag on we just we we just made money we started making money in like in like march and we started breaking even by april so it was like (laughs) the money just kept going up
0: and that was it (laughs) of course your internal organization was not ready for that oh yeah how did you what did you do to make that possible that growth that did you set up uh, a structure did you hire managers below you what how how did it because uh, let's put it that way in april say february march how many people were working on uh remo at that point six six people six six people and say six months later how many people were working at that point, at Remo? It's like,
1: like I think, like fifty.
0: <laughs> How did you scale that up? What was for you the the beacon of trust? What made that happen for you?
1: I mean, I mean, I've never been in that situation before. I mean, that was like brand new. I mean, it's. Um, I was definitely the, like trying to figure it all all out all out myself. So I, I did a lot of different things. Like um, we hired quickly. Um, we hired some consultants to help us hire. Um, we hired a person who helped us with growth as well. A consulting company helped us with growth. It's like a startup, startups, those startup growth companies. That helped us a lot. That helped us a lot. That was probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. Um, and they helped me hire. They helped me lay out a lot of some of the groundwork, some processes and all that kind of stuff. We really just hustle and just hired great people. I and mean, that's the key. You got to hire really, really, really good people. Um, and we, I was very lucky that I was able to meet people that were really great. I was so lucky and very grateful for, 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 for that in itself, or else I would never be here, um, by myself for sure.
0: How many people is uh, Remo now? About a hundred. Okay. I was talking to uh, somebody some time ago when I asked him like, how many people are now in the development team He said like, actually, I don't know. Let, let me check Slack. How many people are a member of their channel? And then he said like, oh, it's 75. Do you know every single one of them? Did you hire yeah. every single one of them?
1: Yeah, I hired I met every single, every single person.
0: Okay.
1: So I do know every single person. So. Okay.
0: And it's important for me to know
1: every single person. It's important for me to have relationships with as many of them as I can. I don't, I'm not able to talk to as much of them as often, but I, I really care about that. I really care about being able to talk to them, being able to share with them, you know, learn about what they're doing, share the highs and the lows together. Um, I, I think that's really important
0: then one of the things that you also quite often hear when it comes to scaling up that quickly is company culture. How do you, how is the company culture within Remo and how do you keep that in place? Because a hundred people that's not easy to, to keep a company culture the, the same way as you envision it. So co- co-
1: company culture, um, you know, when small it's easy and you determine what it is you develop the values the core values and then you talk about it and relatively when it's a small company it's okay you don't you don't need a lot of values you need a lot of that kind of stuff 50 60 people i think it's okay when you get up to 100 i think it also depends on like how long you stay in each um, number of people so you know we started slowing down and not hiring as many when we when we started going up to 100 And in that period of time, we were able to spend a lot of time making sure everyone understood all the values. And that's key. So it's a bit different from a company that just keeps on scaling, keeps on scaling, keeps going up, 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 up. That's hard. That's very, very difficult. But we kind of went and we're kind of like slowing down in the hiring and not being super aggressive. We want to, you know, watch the market, be a little bit more strategic. We have a lot of time there to kind of make up for the gap that, that we may have had before in the culture. So that kind of worked out for us, but at that time culture really wasn't an issue because the team was just so small and it was okay, it was all right. But now we have like onboarding, we have something, we have a customer empathy program that we've launched, and these customer empathy empathy programs try to reduce the distance between each person and the customer. Um, And so we have that where you know people will uh, go attend the group demos, Um, they will go shadow chat support, they will go talk to customers. Like there's a lot of this sort of building up of empathy that I personally encourage. It's it's not only I encourage, but I basically like say you guys all need to do this because I strongly believe that we're building for the customer. We're building for humans, for people. And we are a human company. Um, and, and in order to, to do that well, you need to understand who that human, who that person is. And so those are some of the yeah. two
0: things that we do. Uh, and that program came that from you, or was there a employee said like, "Let's do this," with a suggestion um, to start doing this.
1: So I, I came up with like the the overall framework for the program, but the actual individual things that people will do, I asked the whole company and saying, "What would? Okay, this is my goal. What do you guys want to do? What are you guys passionate about doing? That you're comfortable with?" let's bring in those ideas. Let's vote about that. And then we put that into the program and we give everyone choices, options. Like, what do you want to do? And it's like a once a month program. So one month, one day in a month, you got to do something. And you have to choose amongst three things or whatever, depending on your department and what you like to do. Because not all engineers want to be in front of a customer. Not all engineers want to talk to someone. Not everyone is comfortable doing certain things. And so, I was like, that's fine. know, I don't really mind what it is that I don't... I, sh- I shouldn't be dictating what you should be doing, but I want to figure out what are you comfortable with and it's most effective for you personally and how do we make this program work for you?
0: Okay. And do you work with like KPIs or OKRs or something else to measure the productiveness and the effectiveness of people? We use OKRs. We use
1: OKRs. We've been using it since the beginning. Yeah, I've been... I've been using OKRs for quite a few years right now.
0: So, yeah. And then, of course, uh, as you say, now you, you still don't know how long this is going to take. Uh, but I think for now, you probably could already see that uh, remote or hybrid working will be something that will be here forever. What do you think, what do you foresee for the near, like, Three to five years where Remo is going. Oh wow.
1: Um, I think I think for for Remo post I mean when we talk about post postmicron, post pandemic, like um, geographical expansion, um, going into many different types of industries. I mean Remo is like a canvas. You can actually do a lot of different things with Remo. Um, and so it's identifying the the sequence and the order of those different use cases that we just really want to we want to grow into over time. And I think that's the most coolest thing about Remo is that we have that flexibility and we have the sort of um, you know it's just uh, I wouldn't say it's a dream, but there's a lot of opportunities where people can dream and create their own spaces that fit their business. And that's cool. And I think that's really, really cool. that keeps me engaged and that keeps my whole team engaged, that we're gonna keep on building something, a platform that that really is digitizing conversations.
0: Yeah, what you hear, of course, like a lot when it comes to engaging with your colleagues, uh, engaging with uh, online uh, events, is that a lot of people still would like to do things in person, right? Of course, the right. question is, when and how? What do you think touches the human uh, aspects of Remo the, the most? Like, what? why do people like remo so much on that interaction one like wh- wh- what was for you did you had like a an insight that you had something else that you said this is the core of our interactions that makes it as much as possible should we even go and try to reproduce like physical interactions or should we go the other way around should we go i don't know like non-video calls something else
1: I think I think um, what Remo is really really great at is we're trying to replicate um, the, the real world but in a very elegant and in the most humanistic way possible um, and that is something that is unique where you can't just make a 3D world for example right and expect people to like like it like second, second life or something like that Cause second life did not, did not succeed. So creating a 3d world is definitely not enough. My belief is, is that you need to address, you need to cr- make it feel human and graphics isn't necessarily something that makes things human. What makes things human is the interaction. And I think what we're really good at is curating and making this interaction flow as easy as possible in a customizable map environment that makes them really immersed into it. It's just like. You know, is it is the map like immersive? Um, yes. Is it exactly like real life? No, of course not. People know that it's not. But it makes people enough to feel immersed into it for now. I mean, ideally, it's like a 3D map and it's like VR, AR, you know, all that kind of stuff. But that that is one step too far ahead of everyone's current sort of knowledge and mindset of what, you know, what, VR te- you know, what technology is. You know what I mean? And so you, the, the logical jump can't be too far. And so just by using 2D, majority of people can understand that, even though it's not fully real. And so curating it, the experience, so that it's just at the right level for people, that's what's really resonating for people. And um, can seeing the map and also jumping from table to table, those type of movements make people really, really excited because they're like, wow, this is, it, I, it feels like as if I'm really here and i can have a conversation The key thing is i can have a conversation with someone else and go back to some of the humanistic aspects of of the interaction not replaced by texts or replaced by something else
0: and did it come from your own gut feeling or is there like academic uh, research or uh, some uh, behavioral um uh, experts uh, within remote that helps out with that
1: i mean i did do some research about like behavioral like what is the definition of human communication like like I, I did see that um eye contact's really important head nodding like there's a lot of these other verbal and nonverbal cues that are actually part of communication and that's how i felt video is so important and in my view video is not enough it's not enough to express those nonverbal cues and so that's why I think there's still a lot of work to be done in this field. Um, so I, I did my own research. I went in and read papers. I looked at stuff myself to figure out what, what it means. I, I didn't have any experts on staff. I think it's just plenty of literature that I could have looked at. And I think the second is just experience. Like I just felt, you know, looking at all the things that were here, what is human? What drives an authentic conversation? What are the things that drive authentic conversation and 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 we slowly kind of just crafted that experience
0: and how were you able to translate it into user experience user user interface right because that's what the platform is about Uh, just as an example i know that as you probably also know facebook has a vr working environment where you can see people in meeting rooms. And one of the reasons that they did was that they had to put in doors, like VR doors inside of the meeting room because that made people feel more comfortable being in that room with their VR set on than being in the room without the door. Even though the door goes to nowhere, it made psychologically more sense to have a door in that. How how did you go about and make at that point, or probably still, I am um, make Remo a place where people subconsciously think hey, I feel at ease here, I feel comfortable here.
1: Well, a lot of the things that we do is we ask the same. I have a very basic question: is what would you do in the absence of technology? Like, what would you do when you actually go to an actual physical event? And I look at all those different processes. I look at what the things that they feel, the things that they look at, all that stuff. And I try to replicate that online.
0: Okay.
1: So it's, it's not really rocket science. It's, 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 I mean, it's product, right? Sometimes when you create product, it's how do you interpret and how do you curate and how do you create something that's really unique? Um, this type of thing is like art and science together there's there's no science it's not fully science because what we're creating is an experiential thing and that is very consumer and consumer is all about it's all about experience and touchy-feely type thing um, and so the best thing that you can do is just look at what do you do physically in the physical normal physical environment and translate that into the virtual environment and then see what works and what doesn't
0: um, in true fashion that you always say Uh, when I make my money in somewhere else, then I at that point start uh, experimenting in something else. Are you already experimenting in something else or are you still fully focused on
1: Remo? Always experimenting. Well, even within Remo and other use cases of Remo, always experimenting,
0: always. What is quite often given uh, advice when it comes to startups or entrepreneurship that you actually don't agree with?
1: Um, I don't think you definitely have to have VC money in order to succeed. Um, I think there's a lot of things you can do um, in order to get funding, um, to fund the product that you're doing. There's a lot of things you can do. I think everyone just simply just looks at the VC path. I think there's a lot of things that you could potentially work on and i think um, a lot of people kind of feel like vcs is like the only route but i don't think it is you know, there's like a lot of different things to do so that would be like uh, one kind of philosophy that i would disagree with
0: mm-hmm. and what's the most valuable advice that's ever given to you
1: um for me is like always always keep building and testing
0: always keep building and testing always build something kind of like kind of like the abc always be closing
1: yeah yeah always For be you. closing. always be a- shipping always be yeah okay.
0: yeah
1: always, be, yeah. Building.
0: Yeah. Oh, always ABB, be building yeah abb oh yeah ABB. um what's something that's not a secret but most people don't know about you
1: um I mean, like I've probably had more failures than successes, but the success, the failures are just very cheap, cheap failures. So it doesn't really matter almost it. it um, I think the thing that you want to do is you want to fail cheaply and learn the maximum amount. I think that's, I think that's the, that's the key. That's really the key. Mm-hmm. If you can do that, then. Um, Failure, if you think about it, is a good thing, because you learn astronomically way more information and therefore you will eventually get, you'll eventually get there. Thank
0: you. I want to thank you for your valuable insights and sharing of your lessons learned uh, in startups. Is there anything that you want people to take away from this talk?
1: Um, I think like, I I think for, for, for startups, like people really care too much about, oh, there's like competitors or there's this or that, or. You know, they they might they might dissuade them from starting something. I think, um, you know, uh, entrepreneurship is like learning any kind of new skill, like guitar. You know, if you play the guitar, would you be the rock star right on the first day or the first like few months? Like, no, of course not. Um, yeah, you know, people have to learn a long time to do that. So it's like a skill, so you should start earlier and treat like the failing as uh, the a way to just learn as, as, as fast as you can, essentially. I would say try to fail as fast as you can. <laughs> the faster you fail, then um, the faster you're going to improve.
0: Thanks again. Uh, thank you, Hoyin, for uh, doing this. Thank you. For the listeners, although the rating system of podcasts is hideous, if you like this Maya Cooper series, you can rate this podcast with five stars and the motivation for the makers. We want to thank Copy Ventures for making this series possible. If you have any suggestions on uh, people that we should uh, interview, people that we should talk to, uh, let us know. Our contact details are in the show notes. This is Jeffrey Brewer. Go out and build something meaningful. Thank you, Horeen. Thank you.